Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy of Guy's Woodshop, and tonight I'm joined by our guest, Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. I'm your guest. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and our other guest, Sean Walker of Simple Cove. I'm also a guest. Good evening. <laughs> How are you? Good. Good. Well, this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how things we get done in our own shops. And we also have a new Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this quality podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife and make sure to listen all the way to the end of the show. And we're going to give a shout out and a special shout out to some folks who we think are notable woodworkers to follow on social media. So let's get right into it. Hui, you've got the first question. All right. This question is from Paul. And he says, Ahoy, fellas. Absolutely love the podcast. Been listening for a long time. But first time question for you. Router slab jigs. I'm getting ready to do an epoxy table and have seen plenty of how-to videos on building your own on the tube of you, but none of them explain how to set them up. What exactly needs to be parallel? Do I need a perfectly flat surface to set my piece on or no? I'm guessing as long as I shim my workpiece, I'll be fine. But then do I also have to make sure the piece is roughly on the same plane as the rails? Overall, my main worry is getting finished and I have one side of my, my table thinner than the other. What am I missing? Appreciate it. Keep up the great work. So I've actually never used a router sled. But I read an article about a router sled. There was an article. <laughs> There's an article, a really good article, actually, in Fine Woodworking Magazine. It was actually issue number 222. I think you guys probably have seen it. It's uh, Nick Offerman router sled. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just to answer your exact question, you do need the rails that the sled or the trough is riding along to be parallel. And you also need the surface that the rails are sitting on to be flat, whether it be a workbench or, or uh, an assembly table or whatnot. And yes, you do have to make sure the piece is roughly on the same plane as the rails. And the reason is because you want to maximize the material thickness. And as the article explains, you know, this router that fits into this trough or sled is height adjustable. And the entire assembly rides on these rails, as I talked about rails before. And those rails are attached to these Douglas fir cross support beams, and those are milled parallel. And all this needs to be flat. The slab is placed on the beams and the router using like a pretty big flattening bit is pushed across the trough and in incrementally advanced down the length of the slab to flatten it. But the article emphasized that your workbench needed to be flat and level and then talks about using spirit levels, both lengthwise and then widthwise and shims to level that slab the best that you can, relatively flat and parallel. You want to even out the low and the high side so that you're maximizing the finished thickness. And let's say you have a, a slab that's got like a really bad twist. If you shim up only one corner, that corner becomes your, essentially becomes your minimum thickness. And once you're done flattening, but by splitting the difference, by, by actually shimming up the opposing corners an equal amount, you're removing a little bit of material from both corners as opposed to just all the material on just one corner. And I did something very similar to this recently when I was flattening a 12 inch wide by 78 inch long board that I had a little bit of twist to. It wasn't a, a lot, but before I started jointing on my jointer bed, I figured out where the high spots were and I used a hand plane just to remove a little bit of material on those high spots to get it relatively flat. 
I'm not flattening anything by hand by any means. And it just made it a little easier to reference the joiner bed by taking down those high spots. Now, Sean, I believe you've actually used a router sled before. What's your experience been like? And did I get this one completely wrong? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, what you said was correct. So I started the whole process by leveling and flattening my workbench top, which so I, I use the same parallel rails. They're just a couple of pieces of plywood that are probably uh, four or five inches wide. And Mark Spagnolo has a, a really, really cool video showing you how to use uh, a couple pieces of string uh, and how to make sure that your the two boards that are on the sides of your workbench uh, are parallel and in the same plane so that you can use a router sled to flatten your workbench. And this is important because if you don't have a known flat surface, you can use these two boards to create a flat surface that you can then use as a reference for flattening your slab. So that's the process that I went about. I started by flattening my workbench using the method that Mark shows in his video. And then now I use it as a flat surface to put my slabs on. Uh, I'll make it sound like I do this all the time. I've only done two or three slabs, but like we said, I will put it on there and I try not to deal with slabs that, ha that have a whole lot of twist. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to have some, but try to get slabs as flat as possible. That way you don't have to remove as much material because it's, it's messy um, and it takes quite a bit of time because you're not able to remove that much waste. Um, so I just shim them up like we said, uh, shim up both sides until I've got, I've got it flat. It's not rocking. And then I just use the router sled, go back and forth, remove a little bit of waste, flip it over, do the same thing, and you should have a, a flat surface. Yeah, it sounds like to me, uh, he didn't actually have either a perfectly flat or perfectly parallel surface. And that's maybe why he's getting one side really, really thin and the other side kind of thick. W would that be your guess, uh, Guy? Well, I, I really don't have much to add. I, every, everything that I was going to say, you guys have already said. Oh, great. Now, now we stole it from you. <laughs> No, no, not at all. The video that Sean is referring to that Mark Spagnuolo, the Wood Whisperer, did is a really good way to set up the actual jig itself. Mm -hmm. It's still not going to get your – once you get one side flat and you flip it over you know, for a slab, that's a completely different animal. So your, your top has to be flat, and those rails have to be parallel to whatever the reference surface is. Right. Right. You know, you got to take that with a grain of salt. That's about all I can say. Yeah. You guys have covered everything pretty well. <laughs> it's just important to make sure that you have the, the rails are coplanar mm -hmm. and your sled is going to ride on that. And it's just a matter of getting the wood up to that level. Actually, it's thinnest point. Right. That makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. So the video that Mark shows how to flatten his workbench now you have a flat workbench, you'll use that as a flat reference point to, to lay your uh, router slab rails on top of your bench. And now your your rails are referencing your bench and then your slab will be on top of the bench as well. And that's how you'll flatten your slabs. There you go. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Very messy. Yeah, I've, I've never done it and I don't really see me ever doing it in the future, but, you know, never say never. <laughs> For sure. Well, I think, uh, Sean, you've got the next question. All right, cool. My first question is from Justin. He says, hi, guys. My question is about joiner fences. I picked up an old six-inch Delta Shopmaster a few years ago that was in great condition, except that the fence on the outfeed side is welded to the table. I've never had the need to change the fence's angle. It's welded and calibrated at 90 degrees, but I could see adjusting its depth to reduce wear on my straight blades. Do you guys find yourself moving the fence often or at all? And if so, why? 
Uh, like you, Justin, I don't change the angle of the fence. I only use it for joining at 90 degrees, but I will, however, move the fence in and try to reduce the wear on the blades, uh, like you mentioned above. Uh, this is especially important for all three of us, me, Hui, and Guy, because we have 12-inch joiners. So the front four or five inches may not get much wear, uh, so I will slide the fence over it uh, and, and join, especially if I have 10 or 15 or 20 boards. I've got you know several boards that I need to run through. I'll take the 30 seconds to move it forward and and try to wear out some of the front end of that cutter head. You know, I can you guys think of why the it would have been welded to the outfeed table? That has to be done after the thing was manufactured. I've never heard of a a manufacturer welding a fence to the joiner bed. That's yeah, yeah kind of weird. I've worked with some of these uh, the shopmaster jointer, and my guess would be that that fence probably had a lot of flex to it. And that's maybe why it got welded in position to keep it at a perfect 90. I mean, that would be the only guess. I, 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 I understand why somebody would do it, but I don't think it, I, I'm just saying, I don't think it came like that for the manufacturer. Oh, I don't yeah. think so either. Yeah. Definitely and as not. far as like moving the fence in and out, I've never done that. You know, if my blades, when I was using straight blades, if they got dull, I just sharpened them. And with now with the, the last two joiners I've had have helical heads on it, mm-hmm. I care I care even less about moving the fence. Yeah, I used to do that, and and in practice it makes sense. I understand, but I I haven't really cared that much about. I it. care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, in practice, yeah, it makes sense. You know, even even where I just yeah. I just haven't done it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but I guess uh, getting back to the question, it's like if if the fence can't be moved and it's at a perfect 90 degree, actually that's not a bad thing. No. But no, it, it, really it just limits yeah, it just limits you to to what you can use the 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 joiner for. So, you know, you do bevels, chamfers. Right. Some have where you can do rabbits on them. Mm-hmm. Um you're not going to be able to do any of that. But I never find myself doing that anyways. So uh, there's a couple times where I've, I've moved it to 45. In 30-plus years, I can only think of one or two times where I've ever done that. <clears throat> it's always stayed at 90 degrees. And like I said, I, I never move the fence in mm-hmm. because I'm joining and I want to use the front of the blade. I, I just – I think – the, the real reason for that is that, you know, you have less blade exposed too. It's a safety thing. True. Other than that, you know, I, th- I think you're fine with what you've got unless, you know, you want to move it to a, a bigger joiner. Yeah. Having it stuck at 90 is like I was saying, it could be a whole lot worse. Yeah. It could be stuck at 91. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> yeah, that would suck. Uh, All right, Guy, what do you have for us for your first question? I've got a question from Hunter, and this is a long, this is a one, two, three, four, five paragraphs. So I am going to paraphrase a little bit. He starts off with, I would like to have a better understanding of what is safe and what isn't when cross-cutting on the table saw. And this is a good question because I've, I've heard it a lot of times. He's seen lots of videos and read lots of articles that mention how dangerous cross-cutting on the table saw can be when the aspect ratio of the work is such that the distance between the blade and the fence exceeds the length of the edge that is against the fence. This makes perfect sense to me as you want to avoid the possibility of the work twisting between the blade and fence and kicking back. So basically, 
you know, the, the, the board is, let's say, 12 by 3 feet. And you're pushing the, the, the board parallel, the, the three feet perpendicular to the blade. And you've only got 12 inches from the fence. And let's say you're cutting 12 inches off of that. It it's, can be unwieldy because it's too long. However, there's countless videos of supposedly knowledgeable woodworkers breaking down sheet goods and violating this rule. Mm. Uh, do these rules not apply when breaking down sheet goods for some reason? Only to YouTubers. Um, <laughs> I added that. I recently found myself in a situation where he had to do this and he wanted, you know, he was making cabinet sides and he had a sheet that was 40 inches long and 23 and a half inches wide and he wanted to, to cross cut it. And he was afraid that, you know, it's going to twist or whatever. And he's just looking for an answer. Uh, mm -hmm. He says he doesn't want to call out anyone for demo demonstrating unsafe practices. You know, that is true to a point. Let's say I've got a, you know, I, I said, you know, I've got this 12 by three piece of wood. Mm -hmm. Let's say I've got a 12 inch by three inch piece of wood. I would not put that 12, in, you know, and I want to cut three inches off. Mm. There's no way I would take that piece and put it against the fence and try to rip three inches off its length. Mm -hmm. That would be very dangerous, uh, mainly because that three inches doesn't really have enough to register up against your fence. Cutting sheet goods, if you've got, you know, let's say a, a, a 12 inch by three foot piece and you've got a full 12 inches up against that fence, I would have no problem ripping, you know, six, seven in or cross cutting six, seven inches off the end of it because I'm confident with my table saw skills. Now, if there's a guy that out there that's only oh, been using a table saw for, you know, six months, that may be a little tricky. Uh, and I probably wouldn't recommend it. There, there's an old saying, if, if it feels unsafe, it's unsafe. Just don't do it. Just use your miter gauge. I don't know. What, how do you guys feel about this subject? You know, it's one of those things. It's just a judgment call. I know it's you shouldn't run the board the on the narrower side up against the fence. Um, but if it's a sheet good and I'm a good majority is to the right of the blade and and it feels like it's okay, I'll do it. I'm guilty of of breaking that rule. Um, mm -hmm. But if I second guess it at all or it doesn't feel comfortable, I, I won't do it. I'll use a track saw or a miter gauge. If it's a small piece, no way. Um, it has to be a fairly large piece before I feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, one thing you never want to do is use a miter gauge on a small on a piece of wood and run the piece up against the fence. Right. I see. I see that on YouTube every now and then. That's, That's scary. Like, oh my God! What are you doing? What are you doing? And these these guys, of course, you know they're they're experts in everything. <laughs> but um, yeah, and it's just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Especially with the smaller pieces, man, I just I just prefer a crosscut slit or a miter gauge. You hit the, the nail on the head, guy. It's just making sure that you have a good reference surface against your fence. And yeah. also knowing how much material you're you're cutting off. I mean, if you're got this really, really long piece and twelve inches that are that's referencing the, the fence, that might be a little bit too much, you know, that might be a little bit too long of a piece to be running up against, uh, uh, cross cutting up against your fence. But it, you know, it's a judgment call because I've definitely done that before where I've had a 20 inch wide piece that's maybe 35 inches long. And I know that I will maintain contact with the fence and I'll run it through. Uh, but you know, is it right? Well, the only time 
I break that rule is with sheet goods. When I'm using hardwood, if I'm cross-cutting, I'm either using a sled or a miter gauge, or I'm using my miter saw. Right. But cross-cutting hardwood, never. Sheet goods, yeah, I can do that on sheet goods. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it's just a mental thing. I don't know why it's okay with sheet goods and not okay with hardwood. For me, they're normally because they're larger pieces. Yeah. 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 So I've got a piece that's, you know, like I have like 12 to 18 inches of reference against the fence. I don't care how long it is. You know, I've I've got, I've got enough there where I can keep it square against the fence or pressed against the fence. I don't worry about it. The first thing you really need to do is understand kickback, what it is and how it really happens mm-hmm. there and there's a couple good videos out there probably the best one i've seen is a a video from uh what's that guy he's like the the new age woodworker the new woodworker or something like that he, I, he doesn't do videos anymore but it's an older video and he actually does a slow-mo of a of a board being kicked back and it's scary as hell because his hand gets within a couple 30 seconds of the blade. It's a new woodworker is the website and it's kickback on camera. There's 2.6 million views. I'll put a link to it in the uh, description or the show notes rather, not a video description. This is not YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. the new woodworker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's brutal to watch, man. He shows how his hand can get dragged into the blade. But you really need to understand what kickback is and why it happens. Uh, Stumpy Nubs, or James Hamilton, Stumpy Mm -hmm. Nubs on YouTube, also did a video on kickback and how and why it happens. So if you understand the concept of the back of the blade binding against a piece of wood and spitting the piece up, once you wrap your head around that, it really gives you a better understanding of what to do and not to do on your table saw. All right. um, Who's got the next question? I believe it's me. And my question is from Brent. You can't do another question. We did a question for Brent last week. It's a good question. It's a good conversation question. All right. I think you're showing. Is he paying you? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this question is from Brent. He's a a pretty consistent uh, questioner on our podcast. (laughs) So he's going to keep it. uh, He's going to keep this one simple. He says, what is your favorite style of furniture to build? Second part, what is your favorite period of furniture if it differs from what you enjoy building? Uh, Yeah. So my favorite style is arts and crafts furniture. I really enjoy the arts and crafts style. I like a lot of the exposed joinery. I like the simple designs. You know, that's that's pretty much it. I, I like arts and crafts style furniture and probably my favorite period of furniture is probably from like 1875 to 1925 and and the reason is because that's when the uh, green brothers uh, green and green furniture was pretty prevalent that's when they were pretty prolific and i also really like green and green furniture a lot because it kind of mixes and melds uh arts and crafts furniture with an asian flair i think is what daryl peart describes it as and so that period is when they were pretty prolific so i i like that period how about you, Guy? What's your favorite style? What's your favorite period? Uh, I really don't have, I would say, a favorite style or a favorite period. I, I like building and have built a lot of shaker furniture. Shaker furniture is very easy to build. It's also very easy to build wrong. Mm. So you have to, I mean, it looks simple, but the proportions and everything have to be right on it. 
Christian Bexford is probably one of the the most prolific guys still doing that type of furniture. Yeah. And if you look at his his website, you'll see what I mean. I've seen a lot of Shaker furniture, style furniture built very badly. <laughs> Where the dimensions are really off and you can just tell just by looking at it. So favorite period I, I really don't have a favorite period. I really don't have a favorite anything. I just build what I need to build at the time. I like building stuff that's bent, like mm-hmm. bent laminations and curved work, and I like veneering stuff. So mm-hmm. I guess that's my answer to that question. Those techniques span a lot of different periods, though. Bent lamination, veneering, right? So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I think that I'm pretty much in the same boat as Guy. I don't have a favorite style. I love, I like all styles, honestly, and I don't have a favorite period. It's just every piece that I build, if you look at the last 10 pieces of furniture that I've built, they're all different styles. They're all different periods. They're all they're, There's nothing similar about any of those designs, and it's the same thing with this bookcase that I'm building now. It's not like the... Uh, my coffee table that I built before. And it's not like the end tables that I built before that. It's just nothing is the same. And mm. I change it up every piece. I, I set my mind on a piece that I want to build. And then I set out to find a, a few different inspirations and, and styles that I like and and uh, come up with a, a design that looks good and sketch up and build it. I don't I don't tend to stick to one style or, or one period or anything like that. I just I just build until and design until it looks complete. Then go out to the shop and make it. Yeah, I do. I do like federal furniture quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the inlay and the the stuff like that. And I, I do a lot of that type of work too. But I mean, it, 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 you're exactly right, Sean. It's just you know, I need to build something. I'm going to design it and I put my own touch on it, and you know, go from there. Yeah, there's so many aspects, so many little design elements of every period or every furniture style that I like that I don't want to just stick to one. I like mm-hmm. the curved legs of this. I like the tabletop of this. I like there's just too many different things that I like from each style to just stick to one. I mean, put it together, proportions, make sure they're right and go with it. That's an important thing, especially for building period style reproductions. I've seen a lot of stuff where people just it looks good on the surface, but then you start looking at the design aspects of it and the dimensions are all off. The legs look wonky and mm-hmm. it just, it looks good, but it just isn't quite right. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that's why I tend to stick to stuff that <laughs> you nobody can look at and say, well, you made those legs too thick. Well, you know, hey, I'm not trying to, it's not trying to be anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, cool. That was a good explanation. Who's who's got the next question? Is it to Sean now? It is back to me. It's not another question. It's not another question from Brent Jarvis, is it? No, but it is a question from uh, I believe his name is Bojan, B O J A N. That's mm-hmm. how uh, I apologize if I'm messing that up. Um, but this is a router operation question. Um, he's making a new jig for a project that required that he cut a long slot all the way through a piece so that a bolt could slide along the piece. Uh, the piece is 16 inches long, two inches wide, and is five quarters thick or an inch and a quarter. 
I was cutting a quarter inch slot that ran in the middle of the piece for about 15 inches that would allow the bolt to pass through. He was using a quarter inch straight cutting bit and a router and making the cut in multiple passes. He had the cutting speed set to relatively high, so around 20 to 24,000 RPMs and was plunging at about an eighth of an inch per pass. He was using a cheap bit, so he was running a shallower passes uh, that he would thought would necessary knowing that the performance of the bit is probably going to be lacking. Despite his best efforts, the bit snapped off. Luckily, it stayed in the groove. He was cutting and did not become a projectile, and there was no damage to the tool or the piece. So his question is, how deep would you plunge a bit that size and expect it to cut without any safety or performance concerns? His piece was laminated Baltic birch ply. If the material makes a difference, the bit was a quarter inch with a quarter inch shank, straight cutting bit. Okay, so uh, we've talked about this several times using cheap bits on the podcast before and why you may want to stay away from them. And they're not sharp. They don't have as as much carbide. And there are several other reasons. And to clarify, he he never said it was a cheap bit. Yeah, he did. He said, um, Where where was he saying that? Okay, I'm sorry. I stand corrected. Never mind. Edit that out, Lee. <laughs> I'm keeping it in. <laughs> All right. Damn well, it. okay. We talked about using cheap bits on the podcast before and why you may want to stay away from them. They're not sharp. Uh, they don't have as much carbide, and there's several other reasons. And to clarify, when he says straight bit, I'm thinking about the bits that have the two cutters that extend past mm. the end of the bit, and they have a flat spot in between the two cutters at the top. You guys mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yep. Okay. Because yeah. there's also straight bits that are a little bit different from this. Anyways, I think Bojan just had the perfect combination for a broken bit. First reason is he's using a straight bit bit for plunge work. Uh, The cutters don't overlap. So if you're plunging down, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a little island of wood that the cutters aren't able to remove. Uh, So this means you're going to cause heat, which combined Mm -hmm. with cheap bits means that you're going to have some trouble, or in this case, a broken bit. This is Mm -hmm. especially true uh, if you're cutting into plywood, which isn't the easiest stuff to cut. What you really want to use uh, is a good quality spiral bit for plunge work. And spiral bits are typically solid carbide, so that means they're sharp. And the spiral bit is going to cut all the way across the tip, so that means complete waste removal, unlike Mm -hmm. your typical straight bit. As far as the depth of cut, I've heard the rule of thumb is half the diameter of the bit. So for a quarter inch bit, you want to plunge about an eighth of an inch at a time. Um, but you can always check the manufacturer's website on their recommendations as far as, as the depth of cut is concerned. But half of the diameter is about what I stick to. Do you guys have any opinions on what Bojan was experiencing? Cheap bit is the one thing. I always use the rule of thumb that you never want to go deeper than the bit is wide. So if it's a quarter inch bit, I would go a quarter inch deep, not an eighth of an inch. Well, I'm just talking about like manufacturer's recommend yeah i'm just being politically correct and saying what the manufacturers recommend i dig that i'm just saying what my my own personal rules are (laughs) yeah (laughs) which which is you know i never got cut deeper than the bit is wide and that's just has always stuck in my mind um anyways i think there was a lot going on there baltic birch since it's plywood you're cross-cutting and Ripping, so you're going against the grain and with the grain, depending on how many plies are in there. Mm-hmm. That can actually take quite a toll on your on your bit. So, you, the the speed wasn't an issue. I think the type of material and his feed rate, mm, yep. and also the bit, since it's a cheap bit, it's heating up. And if it was a straight bit with cheap carbide, you probably burn the carbide, which means it turned into crap. And that's a recipe for disaster. I'm not a huge, and I, I know this is going to go 
against the grain, but I am not a huge fan of spiral bets. I much prefer straight bets. Hmm. Even with plunge work? Yeah. The only time I really use spiral bets is if I want to control the chip ejection. In other words, I want to use a down cut spiral bit because I'm routing in the veneer. And I want to make sure that the bit is cutting down, not across and not up, which can chip out veneer. Yeah, Those are really, or if I'm using the CNC, I use spiral bits. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I'm using straight bits most of the time, even for plunge work. There's a lot of straight bits out there that actually are designed for plunge work. Most of the white side bits, actually, the, the, if you look at the top, the car, it's got a cutter on the top of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They go all the way across. Those, yeah. Those are different from what I picture him using. Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably, you know, like the cheap Amazon bits or whatever. But I, I don't know. What, what do you think, we? I mean, again, the speed of the router was fine. The depth was fine. The only other thing that I could think of, which was what you guys already mentioned, was the feed rate, if whether or not he's pushing a little bit too fast and too hard. Uh, Especially not, in plywood. Right. And not getting the proper amount of chip ejection. And then also the the shank of the bit, quarter inch. I, I mean, I've used quarter inch shanks, you know, and especially if it's a good bit, if it's, it's a nice sharp bit, it's not a problem. But if it's quarter inch shank and it's not the sharpest bit, then you've got basically a long beam. It's a cause for snapping of the bit. Uh, I've actually snapped a dovetail bit and it was a really cheap bit. You know, I was making those slots for the micro jig clamps or whatever. And th- and that was the exact problem. You know, it was it was a dull bit. I've used it so many times. I always use that bit to create the dovetail groove for these micro jig clamps. And I, I've used it just a ton of times and I was just going way too fast, pushing it through and the bit snapped. So yeah, I think that's that's it. It's just the, the recipe of a relatively inexpensive bit a quarter inch shank, and then just maybe pushing a little bit too fast and too hard. Yeah, I don't know. And I am I'm, I'm, i don't mean to be contrary, but I don't think the shank size has anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Quarter inch bit is a quarter inch bit as far as the cutting edge goes. True. The only thing the, only thing the shaft is going to do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to limit some of the vibrations that you may have in yeah, the chatter. Yeah. It's just going to be a little bit stiffer. But, I mean, if, if this bit broke off, I don't think it has anything to do whether it had a quarter inch or a half inch shank. Yeah, I yeah, good really, point. I really, I really think it's, it was the material, mm-hmm. a cheap bit, and his feed rate. We talked about router bits, as Sean had mentioned before, and, and I'm a big fan of buying expensive router bits because they last forever and they stay sharp for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they're very hard to bugger up. It's very easy to bugger up a cheap bit. Yeah. I've been testing some of the coated bits and they stay cleaner. Um, I've not had a whole lot of experience with them, but they're supposed from, to last from longer. Bits and bits. Yeah. That was asked for coated ones. I'm gonna yeah. have to I'm gonna have to get I'm gonna have to get a couple of those bits and try them out. They do a great job. Their compression bits are awesome too. But yeah, I, I agree. It's uh better luck next time. Maybe um try a different bit. I'm a fan of spiral bits instead of straight. I know like I was saying though, there are different types of straight bits. Uh, there are the ones that have the cutter all the way across the top. And then there are the ones that I'm thinking that maybe he used that just have the two wings that have the void in the center. Cool. I think that's uh, my last question. What do you got for us, Guy, on yours? This question is from Travis. He's asking, I just picked up an Incra LS positioner fence at a yard sale for 20 bucks. 
you lucky little bugger you. <laughs> so my question is, when do you choose to use the Ankara versus your dovetail jig? I don't currently have a dovetail jig. Are there some situations where a dovetail jig would be better? The answer to this is pretty simple. I use the Ankara to do dovetails in material half inch or less. And the reason for that is the Ankara jig will not do material more than half of an inch thick. So if you've got three quarter inch material, you're going to be using a regular dovetail jig. The Ankara, we've all had, we all have or had, have had Ankara positioners of some kind, correct? No. Didn't you have something like that, Sean? I mean, I had a knockoff pinnacle. I mean, it was crappy. But I mean, I get the gist of it though. Yeah. Um, I, I've used my Ankara uh, fence on my router table quite a bit to do dovetails. And it's one of those things where it's, I don't want to say it's exceedingly complicated, but it's, there's a process that you have to follow when you're doing it. And once you get those steps down, and, and I say this a lot, once you wrap your head around it, once you understand how the thing works, it's actually pretty damn simple to use. The benefit is you can do, you know, if you're doing a box, you can do all four sides of the, bo of the box at almost the same time, which is kind of cool. Uh, you just run them through. Anyways, most of the time that I'm using a, my dovetail jig, which is maybe once or twice a year because I, I'm not a huge main, – main reason I do dovetails on drawers is because I feel I have to. Because if I don't, you know, the, the internet police are going <laughs> to arrest me for not doing, why aren't you using dovetails? <laughs> so other than that, I mean, I, I do dovetails a couple times a year, if I'm lucky, a couple times a year. And it takes me longer to read the manual and figure out how to use the jig all over again. The anchor I can set up and get going really fast. But I said, it's not designed for use uh, for material more than half of an inch thick. So it's good for boxes and things like that. So here's an interesting thing. I actually have a, is it like 14 or 15 years old, the Incra Ultra. Do you, do you remember, Guy? It's somewhere around there, yeah. Uh, so I have an Incra Ultra, and I've never used it to cut dovetails, primarily because I didn't want to read the manual to do it. So I just, you know, just never used it. And I don't do dovetails that often. The few times that I've done dovetails, I've either done it on the table saw or I've, I've hand cut them. And I don't have a router jig. So I, I really can't answer the question because I have no real opinion on it. Uh, other than the fact that, uh, you know, I do have a Incra style fence. That's, that's about all I can add. Sean, do you have anything to add? <laughs> no. Um, right now, I, I hand cut dovetails. I would love to get a lead dovetail jig, though. It's probably going to be something that I purchase soon. I love the way the dovetails look. I don't like cutting them by hand. They take me way too long. The return on investment's not there for me to cut hand hand cut dovetails. <laughs> yeah, there's you can you can find. I bought my uh, lead dovetail jig on eBay. Mm. I think I paid like a hundred and fifty dollars for it, nice. and it was brand new in a box. But it was a discontinued model. They don't make it anymore. Huh? I'll give um, you a hundred for yours. <laughs> no, I, I want to keep it. <laughs> you know, the, the, the big thing with the Ankara is it is easy to use, again, if you understand how it works, but it's not very user-friendly to do dovetails. But once you understand it, 
it actually makes a lot of sense and you can motor through them real fast. I actually did a video on how to do it on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to take a look at that where I make a box, I'm looking at the box right now. It sits on my desk where I do through and half blind dovetails to make this box and the drawers that fit in the box. It, it goes really fast. You can do a lot of dovetails really quick with it. Yeah. You can do all, all four sides. That's great. Yeah. Anyways, that's that's the answer for it. Is that it for the questions? That is it. Well, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. We, who are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend Daniel Furniture Maker. That's Daniel Gill. And I actually got an opportunity to meet Daniel in Ireland. He's in, he's right outside of Galway. And I went there, uh, maybe about, oh gosh, it's almost, it's been almost two years ago. I got an opportunity to meet him and he is not only a wonderful furniture maker, but he is also a sawyer and has a kiln and he sells, uh, a lot of custom slabs and very rare woods, beautiful shop, beautiful work. He does a lot of shaker style furniture, but he also does some modern pieces as well. One of my favorite pieces that he's done is his butler chest or butler's desk. Beautiful work, very intricate work, and and he's he's just a wonderful maker. He's only got about 83 posts on Instagram, but that's because he's only been posting since May. So, <laughs> so definitely a quality woodworker and somebody that I think you can gain both knowledge and inspiration from. Uh, Sean, how about you? All right. Mine is Christopher Scott Furniture. Christopher is a very talented furniture maker out of Victoria, Australia. He designs and builds beautiful furniture and has a style that I really enjoy. Uh, he does a lot with solid woods as well as a good bit of veneer work. One piece that he has that I really love is his burr ash coffee table. Uh, it's a round table with a beautifully veneered top and an ebonized base. Another piece that he has that is amazing is his burr walnut credenza. Uh, his profile is loaded with inspiration. Go give him a follow at Christopher Scott Furniture. Did you say he was from where? Victoria, Australia. Okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at his feed right now. He does have some cool stuff there. So my pick is Ann Carl Home, and it's Carl with a K, A R L H O L M. And Anna's from uh, Stockholm, and she's a, a very talented lady. <laughs> she does some great stuff. One of the reasons I really like her feed, though, is she just has an eye for photography, which is something I really appreciate. Her composition and the way she frames each shot is just really good. But she's a you know an, an active furniture maker and designer, and she does some great stuff. And I, I highly recommend you check her page out. That's carlhome.design. I don't. You didn't say the carlhome.design. Yeah, it's carlhome.design. Carl with a K. I'm, I apologize, <laughs> Sean. You had a special mention, didn't you? Why, why don't you give us the background on that? All right, we got an email in from Jordan, and the email is: Hi, my name is Jordan. My dad's name is Brock. He is a woodworker in Jackson, Michigan. He is a he is wonderful at what he does, and he has an Instagram page. I was wondering if you do a shout out, if you could give him one. His Instagram is BK Wood Design. I know it would mean a lot to him, and also be a surprise to have this mentioned. He builds everything you can think of, and loves listening to you guys. 
So that's from Jordan. And uh, Brock, you may want to go uh, <laughs> give him a high five for sending us that email. And and thank you, Jordan, for the hundred dollar tip. <laughs> Yeah, apparently he somehow got guys' PayPal address over there, not ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. Thanks for sharing that, Sean. So I, I think that's going to do it for the show. And we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five star review on iTunes. It really helps in search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast here is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. So if you have any questions and you'd like answered, send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. You can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found, Hui? Alabamawoodworker.com. All my links to my social media are there. Sean, where can you be found? simplecove.com and at simplecove on all the uh, social sites all right cool that was a good show guys good talk and uh we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks see you in a couple see ya <laughs>